Father, we ask for your blessing upon your word. There's so much in this tiny little letter. We'd ask that you would bless us with insight and wisdom to be able to apply what was written over 2,000 years ago to our lives today. And we thank you for the insights that you have provided through your apostles, through your prophets, and through your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we ask that you would bless this information, this word, as it goes out. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, who wrote this letter, the authorship? The guy's name, the man's name is Jude, and in both the Greek and the Hebrew, it's really Judah or Judas is what it could be. Uh, By the way, I don't know if you know this, but the feminine form of this word is Julia. We also get Julius and Justice from this particular word. There's a couple of possibilities of who this could be. It could be Judas Barsabbas. In Acts chapter 15, that is mentioned there. There's Judas, who is an apostle, in verse 17 as well. But Judas, or it leads us to believe that it's not the Jude who wrote the book, that this Judas is a different guy in verse 17 of this same book. Judas also, who is the half-brother of Jesus, son of Mary, and Joseph. Also, uh, there's James, who is the half-brother of Jesus as well. And I believe that is who the author is of this particular book. We know that... Jesus had at least four brothers. And those four brothers are James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, as is listed in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, and Mark chapter 6, verse 3. And we know he had at least two sisters, because the plural is used when it refers to sisters. So Jesus had a big family. And how would you like to be in that family? And your mother say, why can't you be more like your brother? You know? (laughs) That would be kind of tough. So uh, Jude or Judah, he could have been known by uh, during that time. He was also known through extra-biblical writings as a traveling teacher and missionary. They didn't follow, the brothers did not follow Jesus before his resurrection. But after his resurrection, they became believers and they actually were involved in teaching. Now, Going on, what church is this written to? We don't know exactly which church, but I will say this. It's pretty certain that it was written to a church that was full of Messianic Jews. Messianic Jews are Jews who believe in the Messiah, and they follow Christ. We have a Messianic fellowship with Barney Kazdan. He's up in the Claremont area, and he is what is known as a completed Jew or a Messianic Jew. And it was the same case back then. People would become believers, and they'd have to be instructed. Now, with this, why was the letter written? Well, there was a problem in this church that he wanted to address. And he lets us know that he was going to write about the salvation that they share, but he got some information about this particular church, and he decided to write this letter. So he may have written something later, But this is the letter he thought needed to be delivered right away. And he begins with an opening charge. Then he delivers accusations of some corrupt leaders. And then he points out what the church is supposed to do in light of this. So the opening charge that is delivered here. And by the way, when we write letters, when we were taught, I don't know that it's taught in school how to write letters. I remember our teacher This is how you write a letter. And we actually had to do it as an assignment in English. Uh, Bachelor of Survival, I had to learn how to fill out a check. 
How often do we do that today? Uh, we really don't. I can't remember the last time I wrote a check, or maybe I do. It's not too long ago, but I, I don't do it very often. So how do we write a letter? We start out, we have an envelope, and on the envelope in the upper left-hand corner is going to be the person who sent it or the address of the person who sent it, a return address. Then the address is put on the center of the envelope, and that's who we send it to. And then when, when we start writing, we say, dear, if I was writing a love letter to Patty, I'd say, dear Patty. And I'd put Patty right up there. And she would know who it is by the envelope, which is on the front, normally, if there's a return address. Some people put that return address. <clears throat> but am I going in and out here, Daryl? Or is it just me? <clears throat> so that's, that's the difference in how they would write the letters. They would write the letters back then, starting with an identification of who they were. They didn't have it in an envelope. They would just fold it all together or roll it up, and it would be in a scroll, and it would be sent off. So they started with a personal identification, usually a greeting or a blessing, body of the letter, and at the end of it, there would be a benediction. I was given a book in seminary where it had several examples of letters written during the time of the Apostle Paul. And Paul's writings are exactly like the letters uh, that were written during that New Testament time. So going on in verse 1, it picks it up here. In these first three verses, we have this opening charge, uh, a blessing first and opening charge. Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, and the brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, and that's the hint that he was going to write something else, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. So that's the charge. He gives them a charge. This is what you're supposed to do. Contend for the faith. Now, when you say contend, this is not a passive word. Passive like, let's sit and watch TV. It's not like that. No, it's like, get up and do something is what he is asking them to fight to labor, or to earnestly strive. If you go to the gym, do you earnestly strive at the gym or put a half effort into it? Oh, wait, you haven't been to a gym in a year, have you? Maybe you'll be able to go this next year, but you get the idea. If you're working out, you earnestly strive, and you say, just one more, right? And you lift those weights, you're striving. That's what he's referring to here. Contend for the faith. Work at it. Defend what you know to be true. And so... There was this accusation that there was a false and corrupt teacher or teachers in their midst, and he's calling them to account to work against this. And, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> on there. A description of false or corrupt teachers given here in verse 4. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So they distorted the grace of God as a license to sin is what they did. This is antinomianism. It's where you believe since you've been uh, set free from your past sins and you have the Holy Spirit living in you, you can live and do whatever you want. It's okay. Sexually, what, whatever you want, <coughs> excuse me, and you'll be forgiven of this. And this is also in our modern day uh, a free grace uh, type of belief. It came out of Dallas Theological Seminary. 
<clears throat> and it was a teaching that would say, if you accept Christ once in your life, you can live the rest of your life however you want to, and it's okay, you're going to go to heaven. And that's not what Scripture teaches. First Corinthians 6, 9 mitigates against that. <clears throat> but that's this idea that these teachers had, that you could do whatever you want to. And specifically, they would deal with the area of sexual sin and money. They were greedy. We will find out that they went the way of Balaam, who was uh, in it for money, so to speak. And <clears throat> we know that Jesus told us, we'll know them by their fruit. Well, what kind of fruit would a false teacher have and what is listed here in these scriptures, in this book? I'm just going to give you a list of nine things. These nine things are characteristic of false or corrupt teachers. And you want to be aware of what they are. First one is denying the lordship of Christ, that Jesus is not the ultimate and sovereign Lord. That's in verse 4. Exercising sinful license, that's a characteristic of a false or corrupt teacher. That's in verse 4, 8, and 16. Rebellion against authority, verses 8, 11, and 18. If there's some authority which is out there, you speak in the face of that authority. You don't listen to them. You just do what you want. Then there, the fourth one is giving into their own desires. And this would be the desires of the flesh, the anger, rage, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, anger, all of those things they would give into that as all, and also the sexual impulses. Number five, being concerned only with gain for themselves. That's in 11, 12, and 16. The previous one, giving to their own desires, are verses 16 and 19. But number five, being concerned only with gain for themselves. <clears throat> they were in it for themselves and not for the sheep. And then six, uh, they were being divisive in verse 19. They would put a wedge in between believers in the church or leadership in the church. They were being divisive. Uh, number seven, fault finding in verse 16. Somebody who walks in that is always critical. Well, why isn't this being done? Or how come he didn't say that? Or he ought to be doing this. Just the critical spirit which is there. Fault finding. That is in verse 16. Then boasting. Also in verse 16. Uh, wanting to just speak of themselves and the number of letters behind their name and their accomplishments and where they've been and, and how it's benefited everyone around them because of what they do. And then also flattery. Verse 16. They use flattery to get what they want. They kind of puff people up. Uh, I don't know, but that's the thing that will test us the most, is the praises that we receive from others. So those are nine characteristics of the false teachers, the corrupt teachers that were being addressed here in this letter. Now, in case there's any doubt, since the first one is denying the lordship of Christ, <clears throat> I want to declare to you this morning who I believe Jesus Christ to be. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's God in human form, according to Titus chapter 2, 13, Romans 9, 5, 1 John 5, 20, and Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 8. He is the creator of everything, both seen and unseen. He is the Messiah of all humanity. No one comes to the 
God the Father except through him. He is the righteous judge of all. The Son of God spoken of in Proverbs chapter 30 verse 4. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Both in Isaiah chapter 44 verse 6 and Revelation chapter 22 uh, verses 12 through 16. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He is the only sovereign and Lord. He along with the Father and the Holy Spirit are the only ones deserving worship. All other gods are false. He is the bridegroom of the church. In him is life, peace, joy, and contentment. And all who reject him are condemned to an eternity in judgment and darkness. That's who Jesus Christ is. I, I hope I was clear on that. I don't want anything to be nebulous or muddled or unclear, not lucid in any way. That's who we teach here. It's Jesus Christ who is God. Now, the recipients of this letter were Jews who would have been familiar with Egypt and Sodom and Gomorrah, Moses, Cain, Balaam, Korah, Enoch, Adam, and the fallen angels. They would have been greatly familiar with the Old Testament as well as extra biblical or pseudopigrapha is what they call them, other writings. <clears throat> One would be called the Testament of Moses. Another would be called First Enoch. And they may be apocryphal writings as well, but they would have been familiar with them. During the time of Jesus and Paul the Apostle, there were lots of religious works which were out there. And just keep this in mind. All truth is God's truth, but not all truth is in the Bible. So if there's truth in some other writings, it can be valuable, but it doesn't make it Scripture. And especially in First Enoch, he refers back to Scripture and gives commentary on those Scriptures. Same thing with the Testament of Moses, as we'll get into here. And so he quotes from these other documents, specifically those two, the Testament of Moses and First Enoch in chapter 1. <clears throat> and so he's using that information, which they would have been familiar with as Jews who came to faith, because they would have been uh, well-read. Now, these false teachers will be judged. There's judgment coming to them. And God always judges the disobedient, and that means everyone. Nobody gets out of the judgment of God. We know that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, but not the great white throne judgment. We will be witnesses of that, but we will not be judged at that time. Uh, those who were the people of God were judged, the nation of Israel in the wilderness, uh, those in the angelic realm have been judged. Those in the world have been and will be judged. And the Lord judges even believers, but for us it comes in the form of discipline. So Old Testament examples are given here of these judgments that came to beginning with the Jews in the Exodus. Now it says in verse 5, Though you already know all of this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivers his people out of Egypt, or delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Remember when we went through Exodus, we didn't go through Numbers, but remember Exodus, all the times they started complaining. I'm going to give you 14 times that they complained. They complained about Moses because Pharaoh made things worse. They said, Moses, you have done this to us, Exodus 5. They complained to Moses, leave us alone. Exodus 14. They complained about bitter water. Exodus 15. They complained about being hungry. Exodus 16. They complained about being thirsty. Exodus 17. Uh, they worshiped the golden calf. 3,000 were killed that day. God put them to the sword. Uh, that's in Exodus 32. They complained about the food. Numbers 11. Miriam and Aaron 
complained about Moses' leadership, Numbers chapter 12. They complained about giants in the land and refused to enter, Numbers chapter 14. They complained about Moses and wanted to kill him. And because of that, pestilence came upon the people in Numbers chapter 14. Then there was Korah's rebellion, where Korah stood up and said, Ah, who appointed you leader? And so they showed up with incense. And what happened? You guys know the story. The ground opened up and swallowed all of them. And it closed back in. And they all went down. Everything and everybody that was there with Korah. And of course, Moses gave the admonition, If you're not with them, you better stand away. And that's when the earth opened up. And then they accused Moses of killing God's people. Numbers chapter 16, they complained about having no water again. In Numbers chapter 20, they complained against Moses and God. And God sent serpents. And, of course, that's where we had the snake on the staff. And that's where we get our medical symbol. That's one of the places um, that it originates from. So that's 14 examples of how they complained. And what did God do? Oy vey, he judged them. He said, that is, you guys are done. And they all died in the wilderness because of their complaining. That's why it's carried over into Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing. And so we're, uh, when my kids were growing up, I said, and whining. No whining, complaining or arguing. And so that's, that is the admonition that is given to us, but also it's a warning for the people who are reading this letter, which means us as well, that we're not to be complaining. God judges that kind of stuff. Then there were the disobedient angels in verse 6, and the angels who did not keep their position of authority but abandoned their own home. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. And that is the great white throne judgment. And this is where in Genesis chapter 6, he is referring to actually the book of Enoch, First Enoch chapter 1. He gives a description of what's going on where the fallen angels came down, took human form, slept with women, gave birth to children known as the Nephilim. And because of that, God judged them. So he judged these disobedient angels, and they are bound right now in hell for the day of destruction <clears throat> until judgment. Then there is Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the, re- the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And so in this particular case, it wasn't the angels sleeping with women. It was men who wanted to sleep with the angels. If you remember, they came to Lot's house and they tried to get in and they were blinded at that time. And God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, to just reiterate the point, God judges everyone and these false teachers are going to be judged. That's why Jude is giving this admonition here. He's saying, pay attention to these. These are examples that are given that people are going to be judged and especially the false teachers. Going on in verse 8 here, it says, in the very same way these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. Now, I gave you the list of everything that they do here. And he goes on to talk about in verse 9, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And so even Michael, the one who just kills thousands, he's able to do that all by himself. Remember, Jesus said, I could call 12 legions of angels uh, to come down. Just imagine how many people would die if Jesus decided to do that. But Michael the archangel was disputing over the body of Moses. And this is where also 
Jude is referring back to the Testament of Moses. In the Testament of Moses, and you can look it up, it gives a description about Michael and Satan arguing back and forth. And there's some, I read it briefly, there's some accusation that Moses was a murderer and doesn't need to be or doesn't deserve to be buried like this. I want his body is what Satan was saying. And Michael was just saying, look, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to slander celestial beings. I'm leaving this in the court of God. He's going to make the decision The Lord rebuke you. And that's where he left it. Even Michael was unwilling to do that. But these false teachers will speak against the heavenly realm, the authorities which exist out there. And he reminds us through Jude here that we will be judged as a result of this if we do the same things. Now going on in verse 10. <clears throat> he says, yet these men, men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what things they do not understand by instinct like unreasoning animals. These are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error and they have destroyed been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. So he gives us those previous four examples. Now he comes down to some individuals and what happened to some individuals. Do you guys remember the land that Cain was banished to? Remember the name? What was it? Nod. The land of Nod is where he was banished to. But out of that land also came violence. Uh, You read through scriptures do a little history on that. And it, it was not a good place. And Cain was not a good guy. He was a murderer. Now, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Could you imagine a pastor, a teacher, a leader in the church, saying about somebody in the church, I hate them. Could you imagine that? That's, the scripture says if the person does that, They don't have the spirit of God because God loves everybody and everybody is a sinner and everybody is corrupt. And so if you see somebody doing that, they're just after their own flesh and fleshly desires. That's what they're being given to. There's pride, there's haughtiness, there's this uh, hatred of religion. You know, I hate religion. Have you ever heard that? You've heard the phrase, the contemporary phrase, I'm spiritual but not religious. That is so vacuous. You don't even know what you're saying when you talk like that. What do you mean you're spiritual but not religious? Do you have any understanding of the spiritual realm which is out there and and the heavenly authority which has been set up? We want to make sure we don't fall into the same error. And especially if we see this in teachers, we know that they are false teachers. Then going on, remember Balaam? Balaam was hired by King Balak. And he wanted them to prophesy because Balaam was a prophet for hire. He was a false prophet, but he still prophesied. Imagine that. God not only used a false prophet, but he used a donkey. Just as a side note, I have this uh, job I've been working on in Pine Valley. And right next to the job is this little donkey. It's, It's the greatest thing. When he lights off and he does so about six, seven times a day, just this long, protracted e-haw that it, and it's just so fun to just sit there and listen to him, you know, just go off. And anyhow, Balaam was riding on a donkey, this little donkey, and this donkey had in his path this angel that was preventing him from going forward. 
And so what happened was the donkey would turn to the left and turn to the right to keep from running into this angel. The donkey was afraid of the angel. The donkey could see the angel, but Balaam couldn't see the angel. And the final time, the donkey turned into a stone wall and crushed the foot of Balaam. And Balaam started beating that donkey. And you could just imagine how that donkey was probably crying out at that time. And that crying out turned into actual language. He was speaking Hebrew, I would imagine. And and the funny thing about it was, Balaam answered. He, he started having a, a question and answers session with him. It wasn't like, oh, this is not good. A donkey is talking to me and I understand it. Either I am out of my mind or this is something from God. And then he was able to see what was going on because he was being prevented from going and cursing the people of Israel at the direction of King Balak. And Balak was going to give him anything he wanted, pretty much shower him with riches if he would just do that. But he didn't. But what did he do? He told the king Balak, he goes, look, I cannot prophesy against them. And when he would prophesy, he would prophesy for them that there would be blessing. And Balak was pulling out his ear like, what are you? Stop it. Stop prophesying like that. He goes, king, I can only say what God puts in my mouth. And that's what he would do. But he went back and he counseled King Balak. He said, look, if you want to get at him, this is what you do. Get these young women these pagan women to come in and draw away these young Jewish men and draw them into idolatry. And because of that, it happened. And God judged him for it. And so Balaam was in it for himself. He got the money that he wanted to. He thought he was just snug and it's all good. And and King Balak is prospering. He paid me everything I wanted. But God said, no, this guy was wicked. And this is what false teachers do. They do things for their own benefit. And, of course, I already described to you in Numbers chapter 16, Korah's rebellion and everything he owned, including the 250 leaders and elders of the council that were with him. They wanted the same privilege. There was, there was division in the camp of the Israelites. 250 out of 1 to 3 million, uh, that's a small number, but, boy, it sure would have left an impression and it did. So Cain and his pride, Balaam and his prophet, Korah and his desire for power, all of these things are examples of false teachers. Verse 12, these men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along the wind by, uh, excuse me, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Now, let's just kind of go through these. Blemishes at your love feast. If you had, you're celebrating a Passover. If you had a single blemish on the lamb, you could not sacrifice it. You could not eat it. It was not worthy. These false prophets were blemishes at their love feast. There was an imperfection there. They would damage the sacrifice the love feast that they would have it would really mean nothing and remember their love feasts were they would get together they'd have a potluck they would receive the lord's supper as we are going to do today with the cup and the juice and it was something that was full of sin and so it really meant nothing blemishes at your love feast then there were shepherds feeding only themselves in ezekiel chapter 34 it talks about this it says son of man i'm going to read it to you Chapter 34, 
12 verses. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the Lord the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds do not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them as the shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them. So I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. That's what a shepherd is supposed to do. Heal, or if they can, administer grace to those who need it and provide mercy in the time of need. All of those things is what a shepherd or a leader or a pastor or a minister is supposed to be doing. If they're just saying, bring the money, take care of me, this is what I need. If the focus is on the leader, that's the wrong way. Just like I've mentioned before, the churches that have a parking space for the pastor right up front. Shouldn't be the case. Pastor should be the one cleaning the toilets and cleaning the sanctuary if necessary if somebody else does not volunteer to do it. That's their job. The greatest in the kingdom of God is supposed to be the servant of all. Then there is the clouds without rain blown along by the wind. Uh, maybe you've seen this before, especially in East County. You'll, and there's a name for it, but I forget the name. Where the rain falls, you can see it falling, but it never hits the ground. And the ground is parched and it needs the rain. And if you are in an agrarian society and you're growing wheat, like if you go out uh, 67 here by the sparklets, you'll see they planted wheat out there, the winter wheat, also up off of Alpine on the right, uh, the Willow Road exit. Uh, Grossmont Union School District owns that property. They plant wheat there in the winter and it's coming up it was our last year they harvested it and it's going to come up this year it's already green and that's what they would do but if the rain doesn't come during winter that winter wheat it just kind of folds over it doesn't produce anything and you become really disappointed what well, that's what these shepherds are like they come in and you think you're going to get something from them that's going to help you in your walk with christ but you get nothing you get no nourishment whatsoever or autumn trees without fruit and uprooted twice dead it means the tree that is supposed to produce fruit in the winter, you know, citrus in the fall. There's all kinds of citrus out there right now. Lemon trees are just becoming laden with it. And also when the trees lose their leaves, you know, as you get into fall, you have the stone fruits which are out there, the peaches and the nectarines and the plums and the apricots, all of those things which are out there. If you go out to a tree and you're expecting to see some fruit and there's none on there, it's like... 
What's the deal with that? This is a peach tree. It's supposed to have peaches on it. And the uh, gardeners who would plant that stuff, if they saw it produce no fruit, and there's a, a parable about this. Well, you fertilize around the base of it one year. If it doesn't produce in the next year, what do you do? You rip it out. You throw it to the side. It's twice dead and it's going to be burned. And that's the illustration that's given of the false teachers here. There are these autumn trees with no fruit whatsoever. They do not nourish the flock of God. Or wild waves of the foaming sea. In one particular version, it talks about the dirty foam that comes up on the beach and it's just, ah, it's just icky. It smells bad. It's no good. And that's what these guys are. It's not a refreshing washing of the waves or a river coming up, you know, and, and it's providing uh, liquid of some kind for the nourishment of the soil or the sea and the abundance, which is there. It's just this nasty foam that is there. Then there's the wandering stars. Could you imagine being a mariner and your stars moved on you? You would not end up where you're supposed to be you would end up way off course. Imagine a mariner having satellites like we do. And you go, oh, there's a star. They wouldn't know what that thing was going up there. Or these satellites that change where they are. They move uh, around the sky. And they can be stationary and then they can move again. What about all of those things? It would be very difficult for somebody to navigate, but they would have to navigate according to the stars which are up there, like the North Star. It doesn't move. It's a solid point in the sky in the north. And you can look at it and find it by looking at the Little Dipper. You know, it points over to it and that's the North Star and all the other stars rotate around that particular star. And they would rely on that to go where they need to go. Well, what if that North Star was a wandering star? Well, it's over here now and it's over there. You would not know where to go, and that's what the false teachers were like, wandering stars. It would lead them astray. And so there's a future judgment for these false teachers in verses 14 through 16. It says, Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. And that's referring to first Enoch in chapter one. In verse 15, it says to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh words, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men's are men are grumblers or murmurers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others with their language. The fault finders, it's given to complaining peevish. Uh, That's an old word. We don't use that too much anymore. Uh, Or expressing a grievance and boast about themselves. There's a presumptuousness, insulting in a manner of speech or arrogance, which is out there. And so if you see any minister of the Lord who is arrogant. All you have to do is turn on the television sometimes and some of these televangelists and you can see how arrogant and insulting they are in their speech. And one in particular that I have in mind, he points his finger and he grits his teeth and he yells at anybody who asks him a question that might make him feel uncomfortable. And so there's there's flattery and politicking and all of that that takes place with these guys. But there's a defense against these false teachers in chapters Our verses 17 through 23, it says, But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Christ told us. They said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. And of course, we know that Paul warned Timothy about this. And also in the book of Acts, 
He said that after he leaves, savage wolves will come in among the believers there and will not spare the flock of God. And even Jesus warned about the false teachers. So these people in this particular church that Jude was writing to should not have been taken by surprise like, a false teacher in our midst? They have been warned just by the apostles and by Jesus himself. Then he gives these closing directives here. But you, dear friends, build yourself up in the most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring to you eternal life or bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them and others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by the corrupt flesh. So we are to prepare, know the word of God, pray in the Holy Spirit. This is not referring to tongues. It's just being led by the Spirit. When you pray, and then purpose, you're to be determined to continue in the faith. Like, I'm going to stick with this. I'm going to stick with this until the Lord calls me home. And and I'm not going to veer from it. And then persuade gently with great patience and be merciful to those who doubt. We're to endure a long time. Anybody who's an unbeliever that comes in, you stick with them forever. You don't just say, I'm done with you. You're making a decision. What's the deal? I need to close the deal here. And you're not letting me close the deal. It's not like that. You give people instruction as long as they're able to receive it, those who are unbelievers. Those who are believers, you give them instruction and you correct, you, you admonish, you rebuke, you encourage, all of those things for somebody who is a believer. But we're to persuade, and that being gently, not beating somebody over the head with it. And then we're to prevent some from going to hell. How do we do that? We give them the truth. We tell them what the truth is. And then we have the closing verses here, the doxology of Jude. That's what it's known as. It's where he gives praise to God, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. And everyone said... So this is what the book of Jude is talking about, these false teachers which are out there. Now, do we have false teachers today? See, we have to apply this to today. What's going on today? Are there false teachers? As I just previously mentioned, turn on the television and look at some of the televangelists. See if they're false teachers. Judge it by those nine things that I gave you there. And you can easily discern if they are by the book of Jude. So why is this so important to us? Well, there are churches, as I speak, I just, somebody told me about one just a couple days ago. I couldn't believe it, what I was hearing. There are churches that are giving way to the secular and political doctrines of our day. They're dealing with the social justice. They're becoming woke And that is being alert to injustice, especially racism. And then there's the critical race theory. That's where all legal institutions are racist. Every one of them. And they have to be disbanded. Did you see what happened? Um, What is is her name? Ilhan Omar in Michigan, I think she's from. She complained that the police officers were just a bunch of babies because they wouldn't show up to work. When they have been derided by Ilhan Omar and they have been talked about how bad they are and just what is going wrong. And so there's 
hundreds that have left. And then they are giving place, these churches are giving place to the movements of BLM and Antifa. They are embracing intersectionalism. You know what that is? These are all new words that have come up in the last couple of years. And that is multiple modes of uh, oppression and discrimination. And I want to make sure, and this is coming into the church, where people are saying, and I saw a video on it this last week, where people are saying, you know, we need to have a conversation about this. How about we just call sin, sin? If there's racism, it's sin. If there's injustice, it is sin. We don't have, if you're in the church and you call something wrong, that is not forgivable. You have to be doxxed. You have to be gaslighted. These are all new terms which are out there. You have to be shadow banned. If you guys heard these, now, frog in the kettle. I'm going to close with this. I don't know if you ever read this book by George Barna. I read it years ago. And it talks about a frog. If you're boiling a pot of water and you put a frog into the boiling water, it immediately jumps out. But if you have cold water, you put the frog in the cold water, you put it on the flame or on the electric burner, and you heat it up, the frog just goes, ooh, jacuzzi. It's it's just good. I'm hanging out here. And eventually they boil to death. They don't jump out. That's what happens. And George Barner wrote this concerning the church, where the church is. I want to give you an example of how this has happened in the church. Now, I'm going to talk about one of those forbidden subjects. There's at least two of them. One is homosexuality and the other is abortion. I want you to pay attention to these 14 points here. First, people were coming out as gay because of AIDS. Elton John, Barry Manilow, Magic Johnson, Rock Hudson. Remember that? We were told just to accept them. And by the way, we have always accepted them, just not their continuance in their sin. Right? Second, then we were told to accept Gay Pride Month and parades in June. Third, then we're told that if we didn't accept the lifestyle, we were full of hate. It's called hate speech. Fourth, then we were told we needed to accept gay marriage. Fifth, then we were told we needed to allow teaching in the schools that being gay and married and having children inside of that gay relationship must be accepted as normal. Heather has two mommies, if you're familiar with that. Sixth, Then we were told that everyone who is transgender should be accepted as part of normal society. It wasn't just gay and lesbian. Now it's gay and lesbian and transgender. Seventh, we needed to accept twerking transgender storytellers in our children's libraries. Eighth, then we were told that gender identification is a myth. Ninth, Then we were told we must refer to people in a non-gender specific or a personal preference pronoun of the person's choice. No longer he or him or she, but they. Number uh, 10. Now, if you speak out against the sin of homosexuality, you are shut down, banned, doxxed, gaslighted, and persecuted. 11. Now, in the very halls of government, we have a man who had some surgery and calls himself a woman and is part of the leadership of our country. You've seen that blonde guy, assistant secretary of whatever he was up there. And then uh, the uh, Buttigieg, 
who is married and speaks wonderfully of his husband and how he'd like to kiss him in front of Trump. That's, that's supposed to be accepted as normal. And now finally, the church is wanting to have a conversation about how we can accommodate all of these things rather than addressing all of it as sin that is in great need of a Savior. You see how this has happened over the years? And it's not that if somebody was gay and walked in here, I would invite them in. Sit down. Please, I want to give you the gospel. Let's talk. I want to talk to you about the love of God, how he's willing to rescue any of us, and all of us are full of sin. Homosexuality is no worse than drunkenness, no worse than greed, no worse than thievery. All of these things God calls us to watch out for. So where will it end? It will end, last point, in an ineffective and unproductive group of believers. We will be relegated to the dregs of society. We will not be accepted. And then in the end times, what will happen? There will be this mystery Babylon, the harlot. It will be a religious system that will come in that will accept everybody just as they are. And that is the epitome of the end run of the false teachers. That's where it goes. So unless we stand up and say, no, this stuff is wrong. This is what's right. There's so much corruption, uh, not only in the church, but also outside the church. Patty and I were talking about this today. A well-known pastor, you would know him if I mentioned him. He is no longer teaching the gospel. He has fallen into the total wokeness. He followed the emergent church first, and now he's just going full boat on the BLM, Inc., Antifa, uh, critical race theory, all of that. And it's tragic, and he is a Calvary chapel. And so it's sad to see that happen. We need to prepare, pray, purpose, persuade, and prevent. That's the message here of the little letter to Jude. My encouragement to you is to become and continue to stand for the truth and the truth of Christ. Now, what we're going to do at this time is Kim is going to come up. She's going to play a song, and we're going to receive communion. And the reason we receive communion is because we remember, we bring to our memory the act of Jesus Christ going to the cross for us, the only one who is worthy, who is able to provide an open door for us to go to the Father, to be redeemed. If he had not done this, all of humanity for all of time would be lost. But he did this. He gave up his own life for us and such a great gift that has been given to us. And all we have to do is remember him. He did all the work. That's all he asks us to do. We can't work for our salvation. There's nothing that we can perform that will uh, bring us merit where he looks at us and say, I must let you be saved. I must let you into heaven. It's only by his grace. And remember, in case you have forgotten or uh, uh, you don't remember the location, Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you say Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, and you say, Jesus, I believe your Father raised you from the dead. By the way, Scripture says Jesus raised himself, and the Holy Spirit also raised him from the dead. If you believe those two things, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. End of story. Nothing else is required. What about all the other stuff? What about all the rules and regulations that are in there? No, that's... That's all a byproduct. We want to live in a pleasing way for God. It is not incumbent upon us. It is not required of us to do anything to get the salvation. It's already been done. It is a free gift. 
We just have to accept it. And there's only two places to go, heaven and hell. If you accept Christ, you go to heaven. If you don't accept Christ, you go to hell. No in between, no way station, no purgatory. There's nothing like that in scripture. That's the truth. That's the good news. What's the bad news? I just told you the bad news. You can't have good news without there also being bad news. But when we get to heaven, there is no more bad news except for the people who are apart from God. It's bad news for them and it's going to be bad forever. So my encouragement is if you haven't done that before you receive communion, do that. Now, the way we're going to do this is we're going to turn down the lights in the center and when the music starts playing, give it a second or two and then one row at a time, come up to the center, grab one of the cups and go back to the outside and when you have done that, we're all seated and the song is finished, I'll come back up and pray. So Kim, if you'd like to go ahead and lead us.